and welcome to the strangest gig I've ever played. True Tales from the Studio and the Stage. I'm your host, Chris J. Norwood. This is the podcast where we hear the real stories of all the strange, weird, wild, wacky, terrible, and or amazing gigs we have to take in order to make it as freelance and gigging musicians. On the podcast with us today is local DFW music luminary, Jeff Lyles. Let's get right into it. Welcome to the strangest gig. We are back from summer hiatus and it is blazing hot here in August in Texas. 110 every day as far as the eye can see. So I hope you're staying cool out there. I'm excited to be back, especially with this month's guest, one Jeff Lyles. As I said, if you're from the area and you're into music, you definitely know who he is. If there were a Mount Rushmore of Dallas music icons, Jeff would be on it. He had so many great stories about the history of the scene and his involvement in it. And I think you're going to find it really fascinating. I know I did, and I don't want to waste any more time. So let's jump right in. Here he is, Jeff Lyles. Well, cool. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of what you guys do at the Kessler and and now at the Longhorn Ballroom. I was there a couple months ago, and it's beautiful there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, let's just jump right in. Tell me about your current gig. We talked a little bit about it, uh, but tell me about your current gig, what you're doing currently, um, and then we'll kind of get into some in, into your backstory a little bit. Cool. I'm the artistic director at the Kessler Theater and uh, for Kessler Presents, which is a larger promotion company now that does the shows at Longhorn Ballroom and also the Heights Theater in Houston, Texas, uh, as well as Kessler, obviously. Um, that entails doing a lot of different stuff, booking shows, booking artwork exhibits. Um, do they do artwork at the Heights also? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah that's cool. Uh, have you not been to the Heights? I haven't. It's it, it's it'll give you an airy feeling. You walk in and it's so similar to the Kessler. Oh, wow. It's an old movie theater from the same era yeah. that the Kessler's from. The Heights neighborhood is very much like Oak Cliff. Uh so it gives you a real sense of deja vu if you're a fan of the Kessler. Yeah. You walk in there, you're like, "Whoa, this is this is just like the Kessler." You know? <laughs> Man, I tell everybody Kessler is my favorite venue by far to play in oh, and go you. see a show in. I mean, it's yeah, which I'll do there is great. And then, like I said, like the Longhorn is is beautiful. Where did y'all get all that, all the memorabilia and stuff? Edwin started collecting that stuff about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, <laughs> he he had his his sights set on the Longhorn, uh, you know, two or three years back. Yeah. Uh, like during the pandemic, he was always talking about, man, wouldn't it be great if we could get the Longhorn? Someone else owned it at the time, and anyway, he had the opportunity to eventually get it, so he did, and. Um, he had a very different vision for uh, the building than other people that have owned it in the past. Um, it's always been kind of a redneck roadhouse country bar. Uh, he wanted it to be more like a museum. He wanted it to be more like a living uh, testimonial to its past, its heritage, and history. So he started collecting all this stuff from artists that had played there over the years. And then he brought in a guy who... Um, who uh, did curation and stuff for Hard Rock Cafe, guy in Nashville. And together, the two of them started um, working on it, just co- collecting all this stuff. And, and um, you know, 
it ended up it looking real nice in there. It's very different, you know, because uh, I worked there in the 80s when I was much younger. And the vibe there was so different. It was, it was, you know, there were fights every night and people gambling <laughs> in the bathrooms and, uh, you know, smoky. You yeah, know, it, it was very different. Now, when people come in there, it's it's like they're stepping into a museum. You know, they're kind of just like in awe of all the stuff. You know. Yeah, that was the first thing that like blew me away. Like once we walked around and just saw the kind of little exhibits. It's like, it's like you said, it's like a music venue inside a like well, it, a it, it Dallas puts music. The, it, puts the customer in a very different mindset you know because it really is more than just going to see a concert now you're kind of going to see all this living history what's the official capacity uh about 1750 okay yeah. and then kessler's 600 kessler yeah for a standing show it's about 650 okay. but um you know obviously it's different it's like the kessler in the respect that it's it's a flex space it's you can do, use different configurations yeah. you could do furniture and tables and chairs right up to the stage and of course the the, the capacity is much smaller then but um yeah i mean uh, for for a show like for a kid's show you take all the furniture out and you can put 1700 people in there yeah okay cool yeah when did you start when did you start booking shows and how did you kind of come to that side of things uh, back in 1985, mm-hmm. um, I was playing bass for a band called Group Six, mm-hmm. and uh, Group Six was prior to that they were known as the Do. They were one of the Dallas punk bands from that very early era. And um, I'd gotten a gig playing in this band. I was considerably younger than everybody else in yeah. the band. They were all in their 30s. I was like 24 years old. Okay, and there weren't that many bass players in Dallas, and <laughs> and so. I basically, Bill from Bill's Records bought me a bass to try out for mm. Group 6. And so I got this beautiful blonde maple Fender Precision bass and tried out for the band and made it. And after being in the band for a few months, I noticed that nobody else in the band was doing anything to go out there and hustle us any gigs. Yeah. And I really wanted to do shows, you know. I really wanted yeah. to get out there and play. So I went downtown to this building, um that was an art gallery space or from the outside it looked like an art gallery yeah. space it was called theater gallery mm-hmm. 2808 commerce and i walked in there and introduced myself to russell hobbs who owned it and told him hey i'm in this band and uh, we'd like to play at an opening an art opening some night if that'd be cool with you he's like sure he didn't even listen to my demo tape or anything <laughs> he's like that's no problem man here uh two weeks from now we're doing one in two weeks so just tell your band to be here at five o'clock and yeah so i was like wow i couldn't wait to get back and tell the guys in the band i got us a gig and when I told them, they said, well, we got bad news. We're breaking up the band. Oh, no. <laughs> of so course, yeah. I had to go back to Russell and tell him, hey, my band broke up. We're not going to be able to make it. Yeah. And he said, well, why don't you stay here and help me find bands to play here? Oh, cool. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And that was that was back before the Internet. That yeah. was obviously before even cell phones. When you book shows, you literally had to go around town and see bands play, mm-hmm. wait till the show was over, go meet them, exchange your information, yeah. uh, and, and do that. It was very time-consuming. It was very labor-intensive. You, yeah. know? you had to get out literally on the street and do this stuff. So I found after doing that for a couple of weeks, I was really into it. I loved going to meet the bands and just making friends with them and just, you know, eventually trying to be some kind of conduit to help them find to do what they wanted to do, you know. So first we uh, we just started having bands on the art opening nights, but then we started doing it all the time. That's cool. 
And eventually, a couple of weeks after that, I moved into the theater gallery. There were a bunch of people all living there. Uh-huh. It was very much like a commune space. Oh, cool. And um, at the same time, uh, the Arts Magnet High School was really starting to happen. And Arts Magnet had a lot of kids that were seniors in high school that were amazing musicians. Right, yeah. Um, so that those kids ended up kind of forming the New Bohemians. Wow. So they started happening. And then there were these different bands from around town that each came from different suburbs. Uh, Three on a Hill came from Carrollton. Uh, End Over End, who were called The End at the time, they came from Highland Park. Most of the New Bohemians were from East Dallas. Yeah. Uh, the Trees were from Pleasant Grove. Mm-hmm. Rigor Mortis, a speed metal band, they were from Arlington. Yeah. You know, all these different bands, uh, Shallow Rain, North Dallas, and yeah. Richardson, all these different bands came from the suburbs. And I booked them to all play at Theater Gallery together. And so all these kids, these groups of kids from the different suburbs were all going downtown to this warehouse district yeah. to see their friends' band play. That's cool. And you put all of those bands' followings together. And that's what created the music scene. Was it pretty segmented? Because it feels like now that the scene is kind of segmented, right? You have your metal scene, you have your, you know, hip hop rap scene, you have your Americana scene. Back then, was it as segmented as that? Or was it kind of everybody going and supporting everybody else's shows? Well, uh, to answer that question, you kind of have to look at where Dallas was as a whole. Prior to that, uh, Dallas was pretty much a copy band city, a cover right. band city. Most of the, the, the club level venues in town booked bands that played other people's music. Yeah. That's just what they did. That's what happened in the 70s yeah. and early 80s in Dallas. That's, if you bought a guitar and got in a band, it was kind of understood that you were going to play in a band that did Led Zeppelin and ZZ Top songs. Yeah. Okay, so the one thing that all of these bands from these different suburbs had in common is they were writing their own songs. Okay, wow, well, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, rather than adhere to what was going on in Dallas at the time, uh, these bands all kind of saw the opportunity to make their own music and have it stand for something other than just the fact that they were able to replicate a Led Zeppelin song. Yeah. You know, so that in and of itself was that shared element of, um, of, of what made it special, mm-hmm. you know, is their ability to write songs. Yeah. Okay, so after that happened for about a year or so uh talent scouts and different for different record labels on both coasts started hearing about this little music scene that was kind of incubating in dallas yeah one of them was michael alago who was the guy who signed metallica to electra Mm -hmm. he was the first one that called me and said hey i want to come down there and see some bands yeah and then a couple weeks after that uh kim Bowie, who was at island records at the time the label has u2 and bob marley and all that same deal she was a uh a&R person who was originally from Kansas who, uh, you know, had been uh, tasked with finding the next kind of big emerging music na- neighborhood or whatever. And they called you because you were the one kind of putting the bills together. And right. They had read the about the theater gallery. Yeah. So um, they ended up coming to town and checking out bands. Um, Kim ended up putting together the Sound of Deep Allen record, mm-hmm. which was a compilation record of different bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Bohemians were on it. Reverend Horton Heat's first song was on it. My band, Decadent Dub Team. The Buck Pets, who ended up signing with Island Records. Yeah. Uh, all of these bands were all involved in this project. 
And the thing that Kim did, and actually Mike from, from Electra did the same thing, both of them, when they sat down with these bands and started talking to them about the process of what to try and aspire to and mm-hmm. how to, to administrate their deals or whatever, they all learned about publishing. Yeah. And, you know, really, years later, publishing is the last revenue stream left right. for songwriters, you know. Yeah. So anyway, back then, that in and of itself, how they were able to articulate to these musicians about how important publishing was and songwriting was, that gave all of these musicians focus. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, it really, it helped them uh, finesse what it is, what they were trying to do. Yeah. You know, they realized how important publishing was and how it would be an opportunity for them to broaden their appeal, like get a song in a movie or a song in a commercial or whatever, whatever way they could try and do that. What was what were the artist's opinion of that at the time? Was well, it they were blank slate, you know, so they're, they're they didn't so, view it as selling out or anything like that. Mm, not really. But it's interesting yeah. you bring that up because at the time. Uh, a lot of the more established artists never in a million years would have sold their song to a Cadillac commercial, you know, like Led Zeppelin eventually did. Sure. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, they finally did it. (laughs) You know, the Beatles wouldn't do it. You know, none of these bands, they they thought it would cheapen what they did. Mm. But on the other hand, the music business was changing, Mm -hmm. you know, and and revenue, the revenue streams were kind of not really there. So publishing was the one thing where people really still had to pay. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to use your song, you had to pay the artist to do that. So uh, they all recognized how important that was. Uh, for Deck and a Dove team, my band, we were able to get a song in a movie called Colors. Yeah. And that whole process for us was a huge education experience. You and know. remind me, who who is it? It was a remix, right? Yeah. Of well, it was a remix of the song that was on the Sound of Deep Alum album. Yeah. And at that same time, Kim was, uh, she had discovered N.W.A., uh, yeah performing in a roller rink in Compton, California. Yeah. And so um, she was trying to sign them to Island at the same time. And when DDT would go out to L.A. to talk to them, she would take all of us together at dinner together to put it all on one bill. Yeah. You know, so we would go out and eat with Eazy-E and Dre and Ice Cube. We were all kids, you know. Yeah. Um, and they were all figuring out the same thing. They sure. were figuring out how this business works. You know, and Kim was doing just an amazing job of, you know, explaining it to them and educating them to the process. And uh, it was invaluable information for all of us, you know. What was that like playing shows with, with NWA? What were they like? I, we never played with them. Oh, you them. never played a show with them? Okay. No, uh, because really at the time, they were all they were doing was playing at this one roller rink in uh, Compton, okay. California. Yeah. And the only place we were playing was in Dallas. Yeah. So uh, until until NWA actually came to Dallas and performed at City Lights, you know, mm-hmm. they that was the first time they ever hung out with us on our turf. You know, gotcha. we were out there in L.A. hanging out with them. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that, that's how that all happened. That's cool. Tell me about tell me about Cottonmouth, Texas, your band. Uh, Cottonmouth, Texas is different than Deck and a Dove Team. Deck and a Dove Team was kind of uh, influenced by uh, the a- ambient hip-hop movement that was coming out of the UK, mm-hmm. Adrian Sherwood stuff yeah. with Tackhead and Fats Comet, stuff like that. Right. That's what we were really influenced by. Cottonmouth, Texas is something all, altogether different. Cottonmouth has kind of started as an accident, and I'll, I'll explain this story to you because it was really, I mean, uh, it was really weird how it happened. 
there was a uh, DJ who was originally from Dallas, whose name was Liza Richardson. She mm-hmm. was on KNON here yeah. and on um, KERA. Mm-hmm. Eventually, she moved to Los Angeles. She, she uh, works at KCRW. KCRW's program director is Chris Doritas, who was also here. He was yeah. a Dallas guy. Okay. So Chris brought Liza out there. Liza got this radio show called The Man in the Moon. And what Man in the Moon was, was she would take instrumental tracks by different artists and put spoken word stuff on top of it. Oh, cool. So she would score the spoken word stuff like a movie almost. So anyway, she said, Jeff, you ought to do spoken word stuff. You ought to try this or yeah. whatever. And I was like, uh, yeah, I, I guess so. And so I read a couple pieces over the phone, and she put music to them on the back That's of cool. it. Um, and Like she just recorded you talking on the phone? And right. Then, and then just looped it on top of this ambient kind of textural hip-hop stuff in the background she has a real great sensibility about that stuff how to score music you know she's a music supervisor for films now she does that for a living she's done tons of hbo stuff she's really really good at it so anyway uh liza put together this event at a place in santa monica called vidiots vidiots was a uh, video rental store Mm -hmm. That was kind of a hub in Santa Monica for the whole film community and the music community. And it was a real famous little place. So she said, I'm putting together this thing, and I want you to come perform at it. And I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, There were seven other people that were doing it. One of them was the actor Vigo Mortensen. Yeah. Uh, there was another guy from Dallas named Gray Palmer, who's an actor. He was one of the people doing it. Um, and, and a couple other people too. So anyway, she was DJing that night and she had Smokey Hormel, who was Beck's guitar player playing along with her while she was DJing. That's cool. And then this chorus of us, of, of spoken word people were all reading these things, counterpoint, point, counterpoint against each other, you know? And it was really amazing. And I really didn't, I mean, the way she was describing it to me beforehand, I wasn't sure if anyone was going to show up to see that. Yeah. As it turns out, it was packed. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, she was the one who, who got me doing that. So at the same time, I was out there. I was just kind of bumming around, couch surfing with different people. And I was on Venice Beach one day. And I ran into Teresa Ensenat. Uh Teresa was the A&R person at Geffen who signed the New Bohemians. Mm-hmm. And she saw me. She's like, Jeff, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just hanging out here. Yeah. She, she's like, well, I'm at A&M Records now. I'm not at Geffen anymore. But if you want to go in the studio at A&M uh, to do a demo or something, I'll put you in there. Yeah. And the first idea that popped in my head was like, wow, that's a place to sleep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, so I, I figured I'll just book like three or four days and just live in there for three or four no days. No more couches. You got a proper place. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I had no no uh, equipment with me. I had yeah. no material prepared. I had no songs, no concepts, nothing. So I figured I would go in the studio and try, and I had a friend out there named Mickey Petralia, who was a DJ, a club DJ, and he was the only person I knew in L.A. who had a sampler. Yeah. So I called him. I said, hey, can you meet me at A&M Studios tomorrow? Bring your sampler. <laughs> okay, so uh, Mick didn't show up the first day. Oh, no. So I'm sitting there in the studio with the engineer with no gear, with no ideas or whatever, and the guy's looking at me like, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, what, what are you here for? You know? And I said, honestly, I don't know, you know? And I said, I had my backpack with me, and I had all these notebooks that were filled with little things that I had written. I said, would you mind, I know this sounds stupid, but would you mind if I just read these onto tape in case I ever lose these notebooks? Yeah. 
And he's like, sure, dude, it's your time. Do whatever you want to do. <laughs> so I spent all day that day just yeah. reading all these little bits of stuff onto tape, not really performing them, yeah. just reading them to kind of document or just to have them, you know? Right. So that's how the whole first day went. The second day, Mick showed up with a sampler. And we started just doing all these beats and loops or whatever. The the tracks that had the vocals on it were muted. Yeah. He didn't Mick didn't even know I did any of that stuff. Okay. So we're just doing all these instrumental beats and stuff. And at the end of the day, Michael, the engineer, unpressed the mute button on one of the beats that we had done and it had me talking behind it. And Mick like looks at me and goes, What is that? Yeah. And I was like, That's some shit I recorded yesterday. He goes, No, man, that sounds good. Yeah. And as it turns out, there were 17 different pieces of music that had bits of me talking on top of them. The whole and, thing. And the were whole, they like fully fleshed out, kind of fully fleshed out? Right. And it was completely accidental. That's awesome. Yes. I mean, because the, the vocals weren't really verse, chorus, verse, chorus right. type lyrics, they were just random me talking. Mm-hmm. You know, it just worked on that level. It sounded like a movie soundtrack or yeah. something, you know, kind of the same way Liza's radio show sounded. So anyway, after three days, you know, Teresa kind of expected me to have maybe one or two different demo song ideas. I had 17 of them. Wow. And so she recorded the whole thing on a cassette and passed it around the offices at A&M. Everybody there got really excited about it. Yeah, we got to sign this. This is really different. You know, this is really, you know, whatever. Because there really wasn't much. Nobody else was really doing that. No, not at all. And except for what you would hear on Liza's radio show, and that was different every week. Those yeah. weren't prepared pieces. I mean, that, sure. that's the great thing about spoken word stuff because mm-hmm. it doesn't rhyme and it's not metered. You can put it on top of anything, and it, and it works. Yeah. So, um, and you know, Def Slam poetry wasn't really a thing at the time. No, not yet. That's no, cool. And that's slam poetry. That's different. Yeah. That's rhythmic. That's, you know, that's sure. the, the way. The, but just the idea of like a spoken word over a beat. Yeah. My stuff was all really introspective, first person stuff, just kind of thoughts in my own head. You know, it wasn't really like trying to be a poet. And I've right. never been a poet. You know, yeah. that's not it. Uh, so anyway, after A&M, you know, started thinking, well, we got to sign this. A&M wasn't having a whole lot of success as a label at the time. They had Soundgarden and that was about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, so they, you know, got excited about it and they were really into it. And then she tried to set me up with this guy uh, who was an A&R guy there in A&M. And he and I didn't really hit it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of soured on wanting to do this thing for A&M. Yeah. I took a couple of the cassettes and started giving them to different people. And within like a week, these two or three different A&R guys at different labels were interested and wanted to take me to lunch. So I was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get these tapes out of A&M, you know, and do a deal with somebody else if I need to, you know. And there was at least, you know, a month there where I was just trying to figure out how am I going to do this? Am I going to go back and re-record it or, you know, or whatever. And 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 you're still in L.A. at this point, kind of sitting on couches. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually... uh, Eventually, I met these guys who have a video production company. It was called Underground Media. And it was an amazing thing to meet them. It was incredible to meet them. Um, They did the music videos for Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. They did the tool videos for Prison Sex and Opiate. Yeah. Uh, They did... uh, they just did a bunch of them and David Bowie all these they had done these incredible videos right so they had heard my tape and they wanted to make like a film version of it wow they were a full length feature film version mm-hmm. so they were you know trying to figure out how best to sequence all the pieces and you know a project like that has a lot of pre-development you know there's a lot of like you know 
ideas getting thrown back and forth about how to lay it out and all yeah. that stuff. So that that took time, right? And during that time, I just sat in the office and worked there mm-hmm. as a production assistant or whatever, you know, just doing whatever they need me to do, run to the store to yeah. get something to eat, you know, all that stuff. I was just trying to stay busy while they were figuring all this stuff out. And during that time, I mean, it was incredible. Uh, Dean Carr, who was one of the directors, wow. ju- had just done Dave Matthews' crash video, and wow. Don't Drink the Water, and he was blowing up. He got Marilyn Manson on MTV with Sweet Sweet Dreams video. Yeah. You know, all this stuff was blowing up, and all these things were kind of coalescing. Uh, Andy Rosen, who was one of the guys who owned the place, and Jeff Sachs, uh, they made friends with Nancy Berry, who was the vice chairman of Virgin Records at the time. Yeah. And they played it for her, her, played my stuff for her, and she said, we got to sign this. You mm-hmm. know, we'll, we'll put this on Virgin. Wow. So the, I ended up doing a deal with Virgin then. And they got me on the Lollapalooza tour that summer. Yeah. And that was like just basically the, the idea behind doing that was just to buy us like three months that we could keep, you know, Promoting doing pre-production yeah. on the, the record and everything. So, yeah. What was that tour like? How, how, many, sh- how many dates? All of them. All of them. Wow. Yeah. All over the country. Yeah. That was, inc- I bet that was incredible. It was weird. It yeah. was definitely weird. Uh, that was your tool was on it. Snoop Dogg, Devo, and ninety sevens were old ninety sevens were on that. Yeah, tour also right. Yeah, had you were you friends with them at the time? I yeah, mean, had I was you friends. known them from I Dallas? Had, I had known Rat forever yeah. since theater gallery days. Uh, their their situation on that tour was pretty weird because they played on the smaller stage at right. two o'clock every day. And at 2.05, on the big stage, corn went on. Oh, no. So they usually, and this started off, it's the same thing every day. Every day, when they were about to go on at noon, or or 2 o'clock, I mean, uh, there'd be like 2,000 people there. Yeah. You know, and as soon as corn started... all of them would jump up and run over to the other side. Yeah. And I felt so bad for Red. I remember walking yeah. into the production office one day and he was on the phone with their manager. Get us off this fucking thing. What is this? You know, this is so not us, you know? So you're living in LA and then what, what happened with, with Cottonmouth after kind of the Lollapalooza tour? What happened after that? Um, it's weird. There was a DJ in Seattle named Marco Collins, who's mm-hmm. an extremely influential DJ yeah. up there. He was one of the first guys that played Nirvana and Soundgarden on the radio. He fell in love with my record. So he started playing it on the radio up there all the time. As it turns out, out of all the records that we sold in the country, 90% of them were in Seattle and 10% were the rest of the country. <laughs> that's, that's funny. That He was so into it. Yeah. Yes, he was. I'm, I'm telling you. I, and when we went up there, we were playing big shows like Infest with Radiohead and yeah. Foo Fighters, you know, that's and awesome. big sh- and uh, venues like Phoenix Underground, really big, big venues doing really good. But we couldn't get anyone else in the country really to play the record. Hmm. And I could totally understand that because, you know, it's somebody talking. It's not the same as listening to a band play a song. And it would kind of would imagine how some radio program directors would think that's confusing. Sure. To have somebody talking who's not one of their DJs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I totally understood. I never expected it to be like a big radio hit. It was never going to happen. How how Marco was able to pull that off in Seattle, I'll never know. Yeah. You know, it was it was a miracle. So when y'all played live, it was just the two of you then. No, no, no. It was a full band. You do full band? Yeah. By that time, Kenny Withrow from New Bohemians was playing guitar. Uh, Zach Baird, who played keyboards in Billy Goat. 
uh, and Corn. He yeah. was the keyboardist. David Mozzie played bass for Fiona Apple on MC 900 for Jesus. He was a bass player. Yeah. Uh, drummer was Michael Jerome from Course of Empire. Mm-hmm. It was a really amazing band. Yeah. And it actually helped me a lot because when you're just standing there talking, that can get boring really quick to sure. an audience. And these guys, every single night, took it to an amazing level. Like, yeah. literally, the, the audience walked in there expecting to hear me talking, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And they walked out of there going, who was that band? Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm, a lot of this, I admit it, a lot of time, I'm just standing on the side of the stage listening to myself. Yeah. You know? I was just so blown away by what they were doing. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. Tell me about the strangest gig you've ever played, promoted, booked, seen. That really, I've been doing this for 35 years now. That That's kind of a hard question to answer. I, I will say this. That thing in the video uh, store, yeah, I, you know, that was completely weird. Yeah. But it was packed, and the people were really into it. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, sitting there at the time, I was sitting here thinking, you know, this kind of thing just would never happen in Dallas. You know, there wouldn't be this many people gathered to see this kind of thing. Why do you think? It just, because it just... Uh, I think probably because it being in Los Angeles, being there in Santa Monica, it interfaced, you know, with the film community. There were yeah. actors there. There mm-hmm. were, you know, it was just, that's where the business was. Yeah, you know, sense. that's where the entertainment business was. So in Dallas, you know, you're so far removed geographically from something like that. You know, that's, I just remember thinking, God, you know, this wouldn't have happened here. I, I would have to come out to LA to do something like this. For sure. You know, I mean, it was just so weird. I mean, and fun, yeah. you know, it was really fun, and just uh, it was, you know, Liza's ability to put these people together and score the music to it so perfectly. It was one of those feelings, like you know, I'm witnessing these people create something from scratch in real time. Yeah, you know, that was entirely unrehearsed, you know, and um, and wouldn't be replicated again. Right, right. Yeah. and how could how could you even convey to someone who'd never seen or heard something like that before? Uh, why they needed to be there to see it sure you know i mean i think because we're the the there was like six or seven of us there that were reading stuff and of course liza had her own following from the radio show but those were again like the same way deep elm happened with all these different people from different suburbs or whatever these were a bunch of various different little groups of people who were either in the film business or production business or something and they that's the one thing they had the commonality was coming to see these people come together to kind of create something from scratch something brand new yeah yeah for sure that's awesome. Yeah. And then you did book you did some booking in LA as well. No, I actually worked as the manager of, oh, okay, manager. of the Roxy Theater. Okay. They already had a booking agent. They did. Um yeah. They in fact it was the booking agent that brought me in to work there. It was Megan Jacobs who uh you know got me the job there. What was it like on working at the Roxy? It was amazing. Just amazing band after amazing band every yeah. week. I mean it, the Roxy's basically about the same size as the Kessler. Yeah. But a lot of huge, big bands love playing there. They love doing a show there before they head out on tour. Yeah. So there would be a number of times when I would look up in the calendar in the office and it just said TBD. And I knew that was going to be somebody big. Yeah. Because there were, there were these shows that they couldn't really tell people they were happening until the day of the show. Yeah. Including the employees. Yeah. You know, you just couldn't do it. The place is too small and, you know, it was either going to be invitation only or something. It wasn't going to be open yeah. to the public or something like that. So there would be days when I would go to work, you know, not knowing who was playing and I'd get there and the Sex Pistols were there wow. sound checking yeah. or Black Crows or Red Hot Chili Peppers or, you know, that happened a lot. That's crazy. 
And the guy, the guy who owns the Roxy, uh, Lou Adler. Lou Adler is a guy who produced Cheech and Chong's movies, mm-hmm. and he produced Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah. and all that. If if you've ever seen uh, a Lakers game, you're watching a Lakers game on TV, and Jack Nicholson is sitting there on the corner mm-hmm. on the side. It's, that's Lou Adler sitting next to him, the yeah. guy with the hat and the glasses. Yeah, yeah, okay. They're best friends. So Nicholson, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's still there, but at the time they had this room inside, this little secret room inside the Roxy called the Nicholson Room. <laughs> and it was a little living room with a big TV, and, and it's yeah. like, you know, it's kind of had a hidden door and everything. That was my office. Uh-huh. So that's where I'd go in there and do all the paperwork at the end of the night and everything. Did you have to, ever have to clear out for Nicholson to come in? No, he never he never showed up when I was yeah. working there. That's- I wish that he did, but... In fact, Lou very rarely ever showed yeah. up. You know, he I think maybe once the entire time I worked there. That's crazy. Yeah, but he was the guy who started it. You know, he got all those artists from Laurel Canyon in the seventies to come mm-hmm. play there, like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and all those people. Yeah, yeah. In fact, he produced Neil, Mamas and the Papas, right? I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So let's talk. Tell me about your your dream gig, and that you know can mean whatever you want it to mean. Dream venue, dream act to book dream uh build a play on um well honestly the 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 gig that i've got at the kessler now is is about the best gig that i've ever had that's great i've worked a lot of different venues i had a lot of fun working a lot of different places but the kessler is so perfect for me right now being at this age Mm -hmm. i mean it's a place where the shows end early you know we're out of there at 11 o'clock every night you know it's it's and it's ideal the people are great the team is great the owner is great Everybody up and down the staff all yeah. love working there, and they've all been there a really long time. When mm-hmm. you go to work there, you pretty much don't want to ever leave. It's yeah. got that kind of vibe. But if you were to ask me, like, in an abstract question, uh, in the same way that Edwin had this dream of resurrecting the Longhorn Ballroom, if there was a place that I would love to resurrect, yeah, it would be Caravan of Dreams in Fort Worth. Oh, yeah. You know, because uh, Fort Worth music scene is jumping off right now. Yeah. And it's crazy that they've been able to do it without a place like Caravan of Dreams over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Edwin first hired me, I was working at the Roxy when I first met Edwin. He yeah. brought me back here to do the Kessler. And when we were just kind of in that year and a half long period of trying to figure out what the Kessler was going to be, I kept referring to Caravan of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very rare that you see a venue like that. Yeah. That's a dedicated listening room where the curation is just top shelf. It's a mixture of musicians, jazz musicians, spoken word people. All you know, It's yeah. a very much a listening experience. And there were so few of those type of venues across the country. I mean, there was Largo in Los Angeles, yeah. City Winery, and Knitting Factory in New York City. They're, they're, those places yeah. are just rare, you know. And I'm so glad that Edwin was on board with sure. wanting to do something like that rather than, you know, just blow out a rock bar, you know, or some yeah. something like that. I mean, he definitely uh, realized that for a place like that to exist and succeed in a neighborhood like North Oak Cliff, that it was going to have to be a low impact mm-hmm. type. And by, and by that, I mean, you know, rock and roll bar, you know, empties out at two o'clock in the morning right. and the people are drunk and they're walking around the neighborhood. That's what we couldn't have. Right. You know, it had to be something like an adult listening room type crowd so it wouldn't impact the neighborhood negatively. Yeah. You know, these there are people that live, including myself, live 100 feet away from the Kessler, you know, yeah. so we couldn't be this loud place yeah. that disrupts their lives, you know. Sure. 
So uh, part of it being a listening room thing was was essential to its personality and what it's become. We can still do rock and roll shows or whatever, but sure. they're usually over at 11 o'clock. Yeah, you know? that's great. Yeah. Man, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. I really appreciate it. Just hearing the stories was, was really great. Yeah. I loved it. So awesome. thanks so much. Yeah, happy to help. All right, there he goes, Jeff Lyles. Y'all definitely be sure to go see shows at the Kessler, at the Longhorn Ballroom. If you're in Houston, at the Heights. Man, what they do is so awesome, and they are so vital to the local music community, the local music scene, and uh, they're just top-notch. They do it right, the best place to watch shows in, in, in town. So, And uh, hey, maybe one day at Caravan of Dreams in Fort Worth, you know? Thanks so much again to Jeff for coming on. It was an absolute honor. He is the best of good dudes, and uh, it, was a, it was a real thrill, so... Again, my name is Chris J. Norwood. This is the Strangest Gig Podcast. If you're a first-time listener and you like what you hear, man, thank you so much for for tuning in. Please do us a favor. Tell your friends. We're trying to get the word out. We're trying to grow a fan base here. Uh, That would mean a lot to me. And uh, it'd be pretty easy for you to do. You know, you ain't got nothing else going on. Nothing better to do on a hot day than sit inside, nice cool AC, and listen to the Strangest Gig. If you yourself are a musician and you've got a doozy of a strange gig story, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. If you want to hear my band, my new project, Chris J. Norwood and the Knockdown Dragout, modern day vintage inspired rhythm and soul. We'll be at Revelers Hall in Oak Cliff, Saturday, August 26th. You can check it out at chrisjnorwood.com. You've been listening to the Strangest Gig Podcast. And until next time, remember... A gig's a gig, right? (laughs) 